aqui. So you wouldn't mind just turning with me to Mark 10. Good to see all of you this morning. Some new faces, you're very welcome. So Mark 10, starting from verse 17. And the heading for this morning is Excellence Over Mediocrity. And I hope I've pronounced that right, because it's mediocrity and mediocre. Um, and I think this is probably, the, I, cry, I hope it's the correct term. If it's not, you educated people could shout out and say, please change the wording in this. So uh, chapter 10, verse 17 says, The rich young man, and as he, as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do you murder or do not murder? Do not commit adultery? Do not steal? Do not bear false witness? Do not defraud? Honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And just take note of what, what happened there. Jesus looking into his eyes, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, excellence, mediocrity. Um, I'm actually going to ask Ash, to explain what mediocrity is. An example, come on. An example? Yeah, give me an example of mediocrity. West Ham. <laughs> West Ham? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Austin Villa. You did ask. You did ask. Okay, Austin Villa. That's terrible. On the, on the day we're looking for them to do us a favour, like, you don't mention Austin Villa. Sorry. Anyway, appreciate it. So, mediocrity. Um, some examples of mediocrity is lack of intent and sense of purpose. We have low expectations. We seek personal glory or meaning. Have little value for time and waste money. We're driven by instant gratification. And in the world today, we don't accept mediocrity very well because when it comes to paying for goods and services, we expect to pay well and get value. In the workplaces, whether you work in hospitals, schools, engineering... Um, or wherever we work in office, we are expected to provide excellence in return for money. And if not, then we could probably get shifted on. There's real emphasis on value for money, and especially now with the price of everything these days. So we strive for excellence in life, generally speaking, and certainly expect excellence when we have paid high for something. And I brought those two um, pictures up because it just reminds me of um, myself, I am terrible at, at nitpicking. Whenever I've paid for something, Sharni laughs at me because um, if people come to our house or they have in the past, as soon as they leave, I start to look at what should have been done or what if it could, could have been done better. Um, or possibly if I had have done it, I might have been able to match it or quite possibly done a bit better for free. 
Um, so she laughs at me about it. Um, not everything, by the way. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bluffer, as I've once mentioned to Wayne. I would like to bluff at many things rather than be good at anything. But um, sometimes we, uh, we like to get value for money. Um, but here's the question in my heart. And I have walked the floors, I must be honest. Um, this has been heavy in my heart because um, I, I, want us to, I want us to look at this in a serious sense. Um, but yet I know that God wants the best for us. So whenever we talk about excellence in the church, um, it's not a hammering motion. It's not about you must do more. You must strive to be more religious. You must you know, try harder. It's, it's a sense of approaching God um, with, a, with a whole heart, um, with a sacrificial heart. Um, so I, I just hope that this is, is, is uh, accepted because it's a tough message for me to, 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 to share this morning. So we talk about the, the, the rich young man. And he comes to Jesus. Um, and as he asks Jesus in verse 17, we read here, As he was setting out in his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first problem I see in that, whenever we look at it is the rich young man had his life sorted out. So he had everything sort of going for him. He had, he had money, he had probably good health, he had possessions. Um, he had everything that we would probably desire to have in this world. Um, and what his calculation in his mind was, what can I do? As in, what's the, what's the one thing I can do to internal, inherit eternal life? What do, I, what do I have to do to get eternal life? It's not a sense of what do I do uh, to love you more or what do I do to serve you more or how can I love Jesus more as I live on this earth is more what can I do to get what I want um, but the key in this and this is why I mentioned, mentioned this Jesus looking at him in verse 21 loved him and said to him you lack one good thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me you see Jesus felt genuine love for this man as he looked at him, you lack only one thing, he told him. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus' genuine love for the man motiv- motivated him to require total surrender. He knew being sold out for him would be in his best interest. It wasn't a case of um, an, an uh, unequal ask of us. Um, it was a case where Jesus, the Son of God, knew the Father who created us. And knew that because he created us, he knew exactly what we need. So he has our best interest at heart. He knew total commitment would bring joy and peace and abundant life. He knew unconditional devotion would result in obedience and the blessings it brings. So firstly, it's the unconditional devotion and then comes from that the blessings. As I mentioned before, the rich young man had his life pretty well sorted out in his eyes on earth anyhow. But he wants to know how he could get some assurance that his good life would go on into eternity. And I I feel that we as Christians sometimes can get the wrong view on what life with Christ is all about. When we we begin to ask ourselves, what's good enough for God? Is 10 minutes a day good enough in prayer and the word? Should I squeeze in another 5 minutes for God at night time? Is 5%? Is 10%? Is 20% of our tithing enough? To give God is going once a month to church or once a month to the prayer meeting. Is that good enough for God? Um, When we're trying to gauge how much is enough, then we're starting to thread dangerous waters around mediocrity. We're starting to ask God, 
you know, what's good enough for you? You know, is this good enough for you? Is that good enough for you? God wants all of us. He wants, he wants a whole heart, an unconditional devotion to him. That's what he desires of us. So the will of the Father in Matthew 7, 21 is quite clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in my heaven. <coughs> Romans 12, 1-5 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, I love the worship in this church because it's an opportunity on Sunday morning as we come together to worship God. It's a, it's a devotion and it's an excitement. Um, I don't know how many times I've left the house on Sundays and it's an excitement I have inside to actually be able to worship our Father. It's not a chore. It's not a task that I, I can do or, you know, if I sing a little louder, God's going to accept me more. It's just the excitement of what God's done for me um, and how we get the opportunity. You know, through COVID, um, obviously we were, we were told to sit at home and stop um, and we were probably sitting with our Kellogg's and in our, in our lap and, and watching maybe David share or something. And that was good and that was fine. That was for that time. And I believe God was in that, even though, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people have, have went through incredible pain. Um, and then we came back and we were asked to wear masks. But my goodness, it's such a relief for us to come into this place and be able to worship. Just worship God. Not come with it with a condition of, if I can give this, I get something back. It's just worshiping God with a whole heart. So a, a living, living a sacrificial life, holy and acceptable to God. We must be completely submitted, sold out and presented as a living sacrifice unto God. God desires our undivided attention. We talk about jealous or zealous. And the word in Hebrew used for these instances of jealous is quana or kana. Um, and not only does it mean jealous but also zealous as in it's caring passionately. Um, it's no, the, the, the God that we serve knows um, he has our best interests at heart and he cares passionately for us. For we know that God does indeed love us with passion, fervent zeal and wants us to be his people. He does not want us to fall under the spell of any other as our creator and father. He knows what is best for us and wants to keep us safely in his fold where he can love, guide and protect us. That's the jealousy that God speaks of. So in Exodus 20 verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for, the, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I think when we understand this, and we understand who God is, and how, how he loves us, it is clear that God is not at all selfish in his command that we should have no other gods before him. Instead, instead um, it's more out of a deep love for us. We may think that we find something better if we turn to other gods, but it is utter futility on our part. We have nothing to value to gain, but we forsake the glorious love and fellowship of God who loves us. So as I have mentioned about COVID, um, we're still there, not there. <laughs> we're thankfully um, able to uh, be together in church. We're able to have fellowship and um, the likes of last Sunday. What a blessing it was to have and um, the time that we had, it was just, it was just seemed to be um, sitting together and there was no looking at time. There was no sort of clock in the mind. It was just, let's just have some fellowship and have some food together. So um, that really blessed me and, and uh, I'm sure it blessed all of you. But 
through COVID, um, thinking what happened, you know, I'm sure you are aware without even explaining any, any situations, um, churches have been shook to the core where they've had to, they've had to shut down. Um, and I believe that leader, leadership has become under attack. Um, I believe that the enemy has been working in the background. Um, and as I say that, I know that God is in everything and I know that God has a will and a purpose for our lives. Um, but I know for sure that the enemy tries to take any opportunity he can get. And sometimes in church, um, we talk about coming to church and it's a good thing to do. And we, we almost um, slip into a place of religious practice. Um, and religion is good, of course, but it's, it's the heart behind why we do it. Um, are we doing it because we were brought up um, in a home um, because that's what you do on Sunday morning between the hours of 10 and 12 or whatever? Or um, are we doing it because, uh, you know, we've just seen other people do it and we've got Christian friends and, you know, it's the right thing to do and we, we need to go there on Sunday and stuff. But I think that that church has been really, has been really uh, shaken in general across the board. Um, I'm going to read from, from Galatians 3, 11 to 12. I should have put this in my pocket a long time ago. David's like, orange me, just put it in your pocket. <laughs> so Galatians 3, um, 11 to 12. It's from the message, and I just think it really speaks of um, the importance of how we approach um, our walk with God. Galatians 3, reading from verse 11. The heading of this chapter is Trust in Christ, not the law. So verse 11 says, The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's the real life. Rule-keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule-keeping. A fact observed in Scripture, the one who does these things, the rule-keeping, continues to live by them. So the stuff that we've done in, in religious practice, um, and obviously with a good heart, you know, but it, again, it's, it's a thing that we feel that we, we must do or we have to do or it's a chore that we do for God. Um, you know, we, that, that stopped and I believe that that's been shook um, because when you haven't done something for a while, um, it, it can become a real difficulty to get off the ground again, to get it, to get it running off the ground again. So, um, as I said, I believe the enemy has some part to play in this. Um, but at the same time, we as Christians can be very quick to jump to blame the enemy. It's the enemy's fault. The enemy's at work. It's nothing going to do with me. Um, the devil is in control of this and I don't have a say over this. So we have to be very true with ourselves and say, have we allowed um, ourselves to entertain the thoughts of, of the enemy? So the heading in this next slide is who is in the driving seat? First um, Peter 5, 6, verses 8. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. I think that's a huge part in that verse. We have to be 100% every minute that we're awake be alert and sober minded. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
and you can all have a wee laugh at that one. Um, I remember uh, as a child going to Dublin um, and we went to Dublin for music every Saturday um, and I'll never forget it but as we turned off O'Connor Street, if you know that area along the Liffey, as we turned off O'Connor Street and took a left up the, the obviously the one-way street, you know, there's one-way roads around the Liffey, Mum um, said to us a few years ago, and it stuck with me, keep your doors locked. Keep the doors locked. Don't have your windows down. Make sure everything's locked up and keep an eye out around you. And she had scared the living rubbish out of us. Like I was, every time we turned that corner, there was three sets of traffic lights. And we had to stop because I'm sure you've driven down that area, you've seen buses. The, what people do, they just clamber across the street. And if they can get three or four people in a row, they know you're not going to drive through four of them. You might drive through one person, but you're not going to drive through four of them. So if they can just get in, in, in groups, they just bomb across the pedestrian crossing and you're forced to stop. But what was happening back then all those years ago was um, that these were actually taking opportunity and targeting maybe older people or targeting vulnerable people. And they were actually getting doors open and throwing rats into the car. Now, don't squirm too much, but the plan was if they can get a rat into the car, you're taking yourself out and you won't even think of the keys. Once you see a rat going through the window, you're gone and there's the car free. So I was absolutely petrified because I thought, if these guys put a rat in here, I'm in the Liffey. I'm going to jump that wall. <laughs> I don't care. But what my point was in that is, um, the thought, obviously, I feared what could happen. But I think we have to be really sober-minded. I think we have to be alert. I think we have to be on our guard. And um, that the enemy is looking for the slightest opportunity, the smallest opportunity. Um, Stefan, would you mind just uh, getting the video ready? Uh, maybe Stefan has been, or David, if you want to just jump. Be video, just for you, Ashley. After that. And I just think that sometimes we, as children of God, we allow the enemy into the back seat of our lives. Um, and I want you to use that analogy um, of the car. I want you to use the analogy of, you know, as, the, as your life. Um, are there times whenever the bootlid has been lifted? Are there times whenever the window's been down? Are there times whenever we've allowed the enemy to take the back seat of the car? Um, I'm just going to sh- let you see a short clip. Um, this is a wonderful one. I've been so blessed by uh, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. Um, and just a point she makes really spoke to me about the, the ruthlessness um, in regarding sin. Um, sorry, David, IT demands, we're aware of it. Apologies. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine. This lady who has had, um, I'm sure maybe some of you have heard of her, but this lady came from a very difficult background um, and uh, was loved faithfully, just loved faithfully through um, hospitality um, from a Presbyterian minister over in the States. Um, and what she has to share here really spoke to me. Is the, is the volume mute uh, on the... Well, you're also converted onto it. Not true. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to people who court a particular sin. They love their sin. Their sin, um, you know, often our sin comes to us. It comes to us uh, without our, our, our asking for it. Um, our original sin is a little bit like having a cute little kitten following you home. Cute little thing, it's adorable. You know, you bottle feed it, you pet it, you start 